right, so we are in chapter 6 in the famous story of the Battle of Jericho. I think everybody's very familiar with this chapter. We want to go through it and then point out some very important things that, uh, about this story and things that we can learn from it. But notice in verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And remember last week how we saw that the Jordan River opened up. And everybody heard about it, and obviously they got scared. So, yes, this was a you know, pretty common sense move that they're doing here. Let, all right, let's shut the gates because they're, they're coming for us. And it says, The Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given, you, given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty man of valor. And here's another example in the Bible where God is speaking of things that are not yet as though they are. And God does that all the time in the Bible where he, uh, when God says something in the past tense that has not happened yet, that means no matter what, it's going to happen. That means it's as good as done. If God says something, uh, you know, in the, in the future tense, a lot of times that means, well, you know, it depends on what you end up doing on this. But it's always a good thing when you hear God speak in the past tense and because that just means it's done. Nothing's changing that, and that's just a little um, you know, thing to keep in mind, too, when you're reading prophecy. I've seen people before, when they're reading prophecies, and it's spoken in the past tense, and they act like it already you know, happened. It's like, no, that's just God showing that nothing's changing this. This is an example of a prophecy where there's no place of repentance, because this is going to happen. So, uh, just a little side note there, that uh, you see a lot of examples of that in the Bible. But in verse 3 it says, And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow at the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Now, this battle plan that we see here, you know, it's one that, of course, it doesn't make any sense, but, you know, it's, it wasn't about the plan. It was about obedience to God, wasn't it? Okay. Now, and, uh, whether or not, uh, and so, you know, and it was about whether or not they believed him. You know, do you believe what I'm telling you in this? And they did. And they did a battle plan that makes no sense to just march around the city in silence once a day. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times. And you all know, you all know the battle plan. But if I may speculate, can I speculate for a little bit and just, you know, tell you how my mind works when I look at this story here too? Because, you know, it's okay for us to just speculate as long as our speculation doesn't contradict the Bible. Okay, and so, you know, first off, why did God use this method? You know, and, and so just a few ideas, you know, maybe it was to test their faith a little bit. But at the same time, it seems like these people already showed that they had faith and they were believing God and trusting God. I think I think they've already done that. I don't tend to think it was just because of that. Um, it could have been that God in his justice is kind of given Jericho an opportunity to surrender. Because they knew they were dead meat, but at the same, you know, they should have done that when they came and they should, as soon as they saw him, they should have just said, Hey, 
you know, here you go. The city's yours. We'll be your slaves if you want. We'll just leave if you want. Just spare our lives. But no, they, they didn't do that. But maybe that was God giving them a chance. This is what I tend to think. I tend to think God, what, because I do, I, this was a cursed city. We're going to see. I think these people were reprobate. I think they were, I think they were wicked in ways that we probably don't know that I think the Bible is silent about how wicked they are. And I'll show you reasons for that in a little bit. But I think God was just trying to strike fear in their hearts before he drops a hammer on them. Okay. And if I may use a very carnal illustration, okay. And, and, and don't raise your hand, all right, because we don't want to admit this. All right, I'm not going to admit anything tonight. But, you know, you know, some of you have watched scary movies before. And, you know, there's always that scene where, you know, and, and, you know, where you've got the clown standing off in the distance or something just standing there staring, right? And, 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 and you know, and it's like, what's the point of that? All right, it's just standing there. It's not doing anything, right? But, boy, doesn't it strike fear <laughs> in the heart? And, 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 and how does it usually go on movies, okay? You know, you have these visuals that are just a little weird that get everybody tense and scared. And then all of a sudden, boom, something happens big and you just you jump out of your skin and you're terrified, right? Okay, none of you have ever seen anything like that before. Um, you know, but I, I can't say before I was saved. You know, I got saved at a young age. But, you know, we've all, we've all seen some of that stuff before, right? <laughs> so... But at the same time, so think about this. These people are already terrified of Israel. We know this. I mean, their hearts were fainting because of them. I mean, they are as scared of the children of Israel as you are of clowns or, uh, you know, the dude in the hockey mask that you see pictures of and all that kind of, you know, whatever it is, they're already that scared of them. And it's almost as if God's taunting them. And as while as these people are terrified in fear, you, they're just going and marching around in silence. You, you have the tr- priests blowing the trumpets, but that had to have just been, they had to just been waiting what's going to happen, and then nothing happens. And that's what ha- usually happens, too, in a scary movie. At first, you know, they see something and it scares them, but nothing really happens, right? Because what, what are they trying to do in the movie? They're trying to just build the suspense in you. So they can really, you know, nail you later with the terror, right? That's the way these things usually go. And so for six days that happens. And so on the seventh day, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, they're probably letting their guard down too. Because that's what usually happens too. They get you tense on the movie. You let your guard down. And then when you're not expecting it, boom, something happens, right? And so all of a sudden they're kind of letting their guard down. It's the seventh day. Oh, they're probably just going to walk around again. We're probably going to be fine. But then they do it twice. Wait a minute. They didn't do this before. And then they do it a third time. And so the, the suspense is just going crazy. And then finally, after that seventh time, everybody stops. I mean, tense, the tension is as high as it's ever been. And then, you know, what do they do? They scream, right? They all start yelling. They all start making a lot of noise. And sure enough, the walls fall down. And when I see this, I mean, I just can't help but think God was doing it this way. And maybe it was a little bit of all of it to test Israel's faith. But I do. Maybe it was to let him surrender. I think he was trying to strike fear in their hearts before he takes them out. You say, God wouldn't do that. Well, you know what? I don't think those demonic locusts in Revelation 9 look as freaky as they do to make people feel good before they get stung. I think there's things, you know, I think sometimes God does that for punishment. The Bible talks about how, you know, men's hearts failing them because of fear. It's part of the judgment. Because these people would not fear God before, 
And you know what? And so before God takes them out, you know what? You're all going to learn how to fear me the way you should fear me. And so when I, when I see this here, when I'm reading this, that's just, that's my interpretation of what's going on. God was striking fear in these people's hearts before they took care of business. And, uh, you know, it's, this would have been a great thing to behold and to see. And I do believe God would do something like that. I think that's what happened here. But that's my opinion. At the end of the day, uh, you know, God knows. It doesn't really matter. Uh, God's will was done that day. But I think it's okay to speculate as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. But it says in verse 6, And Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpet, and the rear reward came, up, came after the Ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. That's proof there was no women in the military back then. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. I know the real proof is that it was men. It says men. But that's why. Because, you know, I mean, really? They got to do the whole thing with their mouth shut? I know none of my kids could have obeyed that command, especially my girls. Uh, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't have done it. But uh, again, I do. I think that I think that just added to the suspense. It just had them wondering, you know, what was going on. And so I do. I think this greatly confused the people of Jericho. And so it says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear reward came after the ark of the Lord the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. The second day they compassed the city once, returned to the camp, and they, uh, and, and so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times, only on the day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Okay? And we will say a lot more about this verse next week because you all probably remember uh, Achan, the troubler of Israel, is what he is known as. And he took of the accursed thing. And just like Joshua said, if you do this, this is going to happen. Sure enough, it happened. It's not like they weren't warned. And so that is why Achan was known as the troubler of Israel, and uh, you know these come. And here's something we need to understand too. Uh, and, and we'll probably say a little more about this next week. But I just want to uh, this I think is worth repeating is 
everything that's happening here too. When you're when you're reading the book of Joshua and you're seeing all these things that are going on, when you're seeing these commands that are given, this isn't just like how we look at a lot of commands where we just make personal application with it. And with many commands too, we make personal application and it's really none of our business what everybody else does when it comes to a lot of things. But what we're seeing here in Joshua, when it comes to this command here, and with many of the commands that God gave, these things were for them as a nation. These were national commands God gave and disobedience by an individual was disobedience by that nation. And that nation was supposed to, you know, you know, keep themselves accountable and they were supposed to keep each other accountable. And it was, it was going to be bad for everyone. And that's why they had the death penalty for so many things too. You say, why did they kill so many people for so many things? Because bringing sin into your nation was going to bring consequences for the whole nation. And so anytime somebody would do something that was really wicked, this wasn't just that guy, you know, two consenting adults committing adultery. No, this was bringing adultery amongst God's people. God did not want that in that nation of Israel. And so anyone who would do that and endanger their nation by bringing that kind of wickedness into their nation definitely should have been put to death. That's exactly what should have been done. And, uh, and that's what they end up doing with Achan because it did. It affected everybody. And that is, that's what people say today. I've even seen it this week. Uh, there was a pastor that you know, got busted. And thankfully, it was an IFB guy finally. You know, it, was, it was a trendy they got busted for being an adulterer, and uh, and a lot of people were just like, you know, where's the scandal? You know, where's the abuse? You know, it's consenting adults, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I saw several people saying that, and I was like, you know, just how twisted are we as a society? You know, that we just don't even see adultery as a problem as long as the magic word consent is there. You know what? It's wickedness. It's still wickedness. And it, it is, it, it's, it's a horrible thing, but people don't see it that way anymore. And they don't realize that it, it, it puts a stain on our country. It puts a stain on us as a people. It hurts, the, it, it hurts entire families. It hurts churches. It brings reproach. There's, there's so many bad things about it. And you know, because we've taken away all consequences for sins, we don't see these things as bad anymore. And you know what that is? That's just an absolute shame. It's still wicked, and we need to see it that way. And these things, your sins, have consequences for other people. So in verse 19, um, he says, But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And uh, one thing I think we're seeing, I think we're seeing a principle here, because this is the first city that God's given them. This is going to be the first of many cities. That God is going to give them when they go. Because remember, God told I'm giving you land. And God's not just given them geography. God had promised them houses that they built not. You know, and, and uh, you know, gardens and uh, fruit and things that they didn't plant. That God was going to give them these things. These things are for you. And so going and taking these cities. I mean, this is huge for Israel. After they've been dwelling in tents for 40 years in a wilderness. All of a sudden now. They're going to have literally entire cities to themselves. And, you know, and normally that's motivation for a lot of wars and things because, I mean, wouldn't it be nice just to go if we as a country could just go like take what other countries 
have built for themselves. Oh wait, we have done that kind of thing before, haven't we? You know, and I think that's one of the reasons we're as wealthy as we are. You know, we go steal everybody's oil, all that kind of stuff. No, that's wrong. But you can see the carnal motivation for that, right? Here's the problem. It's wrong. We shouldn't do it. God's not going to bless it. In the case of Israel taking Canaan land, remember in Genesis, the Canaanites were cursed. These were a cursed people. And God you know, chose to give them their land and did and told them to drive up. These were a wicked people. And God made the choice. Not a greedy king. Not a greedy emperor or something like that. No, God made the choice to take it from these wicked people and give it to Israel. And so, you know what? When you get some direct revelation from God to go possess a land, you know, then by all means, go ahead and do it. But, you know, if you do tell me you got direct revelation, I probably won't believe you. Okay. But, you know, I might, I might though, if water starts parting for you and God's feeding you manna and stuff like that, like he did with Joshua, okay? Listen, there was no doubt that God was behind these things. So, you know what? We shouldn't use Joshua as an excuse to go wiping out other countries and taking everything that they've got. We should not do that. But God did tell them they were going to do this. So there was going to be a lot that they were going to, they were, they were going to get a bunch of cities. They were going to get a bunch of treasures and all kinds of things, but they hadn't got those things yet. And notice how God wanted the first city. You know why? Because God gets the first fruits. A lot of people, they have this attitude, well, I'll start giving to God when he starts giving me this and this and this. No, God gets the first fruits. You obey God first. That should be the first thing you do is be obedient to God, give God what belongs to him, and worry about those other things later. Let God worry about the other stuff later. You worry about taking care of God first. And that's a principle we're seeing here. The first of the cities, God said, it's mine. You're not allowed to have any of these things. In fact, if you take it, you're cursed. That reminds me of what we see in Malachi too, when he told them that they had robbed God by not giving the tithes. And what did he say? You're cursed with a curse. And because he was taking what belonged to God. And I don't want to preach a message on tithing tonight. Uh, but at the, at the same time, I do believe in the principle. I get it. It's the New Testament. There, there is a difference. But I, I do believe in following the principle. I do believe it is, and this is New Testament, that a laborer is worthy of his reward. If you're a partaker in spiritual things, you should reap the carnal things. If you are uh, enjoying the benefits of the air conditioning here, this building that we have, all the things that this church has, you should contribute. You should be, uh, you know, you should give towards that. And I believe, I do believe those things do still belong to God. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't take what belongs to him. I would not do that. I think that's that's a dangerous thing. And so uh, we're seeing this here. And and listen, God gave them plenty of other cities. We're going to see that. God gave them cities. They got all kinds of great possessions and wealth and things. God took care of them. But this first city, it's his. God always should get the first fruits. And so obedience was very crucial here. For them as a nation. And, and we every decision we make, God should be the priority. We should always put God first in everything. In every decision we make, we should think God and then you know, family. You know, and we put you know, God, family, others. And self last. You know, that, that should be our attitude. God gets the first of everything. So in verse 20, it says, 
So the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass uh, when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. Now, right here, I want to talk about this. This is where many people uh, often get turned away from the Bible and the things of God. Okay, A lot of times, you know, the, the, the atheists and just the worldly crowd, they'll read this here and then they start screaming genocide. That's what they, they like to do. You know, they'll talk about the Old Testament, or, or even you'll have some people too who pretend to be Christians, and they'll talk about the Old Testament God like he was like this genocidal maniac. You know, and, uh, and you know, because, I mean, this is just wrong. They killed everybody, women and children too. This is, this is terrible. What kind of God would do that? And they'll start saying things, and then, and then you have people too who, uh, and and I'm, I'm sick of people doing this, apologizing for God. Okay, Listen, I will never apologize for the Bible. Okay? I don't care how bad people's nose get tweaked over this. I don't care how offended somebody gets. I don't care how many places they cancel the Bible because it's just too violent or whatever. I'm not apologizing for God. I'm not going to change the story where Elisha cursed the little children and the she-bears killed them. Everybody's trying to make that like they were young adults. And I've heard so many trendies literally update that. Well, you know, they weren't like small kids, like like two and three years old. You know, they'll, they'll, you know it's like, you know, well, I'm not saying they're two and three either, but I will say if they're little, they're not full grown. You know, and then they do. And so what they, and some of them are tricky too. So, you know, they weren't like one and two and three year olds. And then what they do, they won't go as far as saying they were like 17 and 18, 16, 17, 18. They won't go as far as like saying those numbers, but then they, they proceed to say things that puts it in your head that they were more that age. But it's like, no, the thing is, they, you know, they at least weren't full grown. So these could have been young teenagers, you know, even, even under 12. You know, I don't know. You know. I don't know for sure. But it's like, I'm not a, you don't have to apologize for God. If... God did this, it was just. If God told them to do this, this was just, that it was okay. And so, you know, what what do we say about passages like this? Because also, you know, another thing that uh, what a lot of the Ruckmanites try to do is they try to say, well, it's because these, uh, they had giants, which proves that they were human-angel hybrids. So they weren't really humans. And I've heard people teach that too. You, you go look it on YouTube. There's a lot of people, you know, apologizing, you know, for people who mistakenly read the Bible and thought God was this genocidal maniac. And, you know, it, no, it, it wasn't humans. It was, you know, crossover, you know, half-breed things, you know. And it's like, sorry, you've been watching too many Greek mythology movies. No, these were people. But so here's, here's the thing. First, what makes something immoral? This is what you need to ask people when they start crying about this. Well, what makes what makes that wrong? What makes genocide wrong? Okay, here's what makes things immoral: God's word. If God said to do it, it was the right thing to do. End of story. Bible says in First John three four: Whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law. 
For sin is the transgression of the law. So sin is anything that goes against the Bible. So if they had a direct revelation from God telling them to completely wipe them out, it would have been a sin for them not to do it. So here's what makes things right and wrong, God's word. Now, we will at least admit that we have a moral authority and that it's not us. It's this. We're honest enough to admit that. What they do, though, they are the moral authority. They think, well, I think that's wrong. Well, okay, well, but why is it wrong? Just because you think so? Show me your show me your law. Show me your right and wrong. They they can't do it. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, sin in their in their world is anything that they see or perceive as wrong. So in other words, they've made themselves God. Okay? But no, God is God. And so again, we don't use this as an excuse to go do something like that. But you know what? God had them do it back then. I got nothing to say about it. Okay, and here's another thing too. Turn over Romans chapter 9, verse 18. God can do what He wants to do with His creation. This is the thing we forget. We forget that we are just God's creation. We forget that. We just think we have all these rights. Okay? And listen, I believe in rights that our government, you know, that's been instituted by God should try to protect. But the rights that our government is supposed to be protecting are the ones that were given by God. That's what it talks about in our Constitution. And so the thing is, if God takes away someone's right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, then by all means, take it away. And, and, you, and you, know who's, you know who doesn't have a right to life? Whoever sheds man's blood. My man shall his blood be shed. That was God that said that. God, God that ordained that. So you know what? Yeah, they should be put to death. They don't have a right to life anymore. God took it away from them when they killed that person. So, you know, and that's, that's another subject for another day. But, you know, God can do what he wants with his creation. It says in Romans 19, Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And he'd been talking about Pharaoh. God raised up Pharaoh basically for judgment, for destruction. God can do that. And what he's specifically talking about here, the Calvinists think, He's talking about an unknown group of you know, individuals that God has picked for hell. Okay, that's, what the, that's what the Calvinists do with this passage. But no, absolutely not. If they would actually focus on the beginning of the chapter, they would realize that he's talking about the physical nation of Israel. God chose that that physical nation of Israel who did not believe on him be destroyed. That was God's choice. God chose them for that. Yes. Yes, the physical children of Israel are God's chosen people. They're the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. That's what He chose them for. Chose them for destruction. Oh, well, that's mean. Well, they can still be saved. That's what Romans 11 is all about. That's what Romans 10. That's what Romans 10 is about. Where we get for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Do you know that's actually about showing that Israel can still get saved? Because that, the beginning of the chapter is talking specifically about Israel and their salvation. And just like any of us Gentiles can get saved, guess what? Any of Israel can get saved if they'll call on the name of the Lord. But if they don't, as a people, they've been chosen for destruction. That's what Paul's talking about here. So, you know, get the Calvinism out of your head as we're reading this here. All right, this is not a group that any of you could possibly be included in. No, this is talking about the physical 
nation of Israel. But it says, Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Now, why is he saying this right here? You know why he's saying this? Because at the beginning of the chapter, Paul said, I could wish that myself were a curse for, the, for Israel. Because Paul knew that they were chosen by God for destruction, but Paul didn't want them to be destroyed. But you know what? At the end of the day, Paul understood it's not my choice. But that's why he's saying this right here. People read this too. You know, who hath resisted his will? Showing that you can't stop from getting saved if God wants you to get saved. That's, that's what they do with that. No, no. You can't change God's mind about what he's chosen for Israel. No matter how many starved infants you hang up on your wall, no matter how much you try to bless them and donate to the Temple Mount Institute, God's not changing his mind on that. As a physical nation, they are going to be destroyed. Wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And you might not like that, and a lot of people don't like that. And a lot of people certainly don't appreciate people like me preaching that. But you know what? Who hath resisted his will? God created them for that. And you know what? He has the right to do that. That's what that's talking about. Man, it, I, I, I want to preach on that now. Calvinism, man, it's so messed up. And, and, you know, and you wonder, it's like, why haven't the IFB destroyed them on this yet? You know why? Because they're wrong on Israel. And that just frustrates me so bad watching Calvinists just kick the IFB's backside with Romans 9. If they would just admit they're wrong on Israel, they could kick their backsides. Calvinists don't even want to talk to me about Romans 9. Because, you know, I've got no reason to be blinded in this chapter. They, they, they won't. I, I challenge them. I, I'll, I'll challenge Calvinists. Let's talk about Romans 9 all day long. I'd love to. But no, they would rather do a regular IFB guy. Not, not, not me. But Naboth, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay. I wish we would go back to Jeremiah and show how he used that same term when talking about Israel. I mean, this is, this is, it's, it's more proof that this is all about Israel. Power, power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Did, didn't God do that with Israel? Boy, he put up with them. For centuries. Why? He did that to just make his power known. He, he endured with much long suffering. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath before prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Saying we're the vessels of mercy, those of us who have believed, those of us who are saved, some who are Jews and Gentiles too. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. But basically, I'm, I'm going to this passage to show you that we are God's creation. He can do what He wants to with us. And we've got nothing to say about it. Okay? There's nothing we can say about it. And you, can, and you can say, well, you know what? They still should have had a chance. Well, again, maybe that's what you did for seven days. And you know what? I seem to remember somebody named Rahab the harlot and her family who managed to survive. We'll say more about that in a little bit, but we we forget. We are God's creation. We are not a product of evolution. Okay, you didn't do anything to you know give yourself life. We can't even create all the science we have. We can't create life today. And so understand, if God chooses to take some people out for His purpose, there's nothing we can say about it. 
And you know what? Here's another thing, too. People want to get all offended by a passage like this. We know this isn't the first time where entire villages were wiped out. Have you ever heard of the Great Flood? No women and children died in that, though, did it? No. The entire world. It was God that did that. We forget that. We see them taking out this village. <laughs> How could this happen? Well, you have trendies. They'll get, you know, they try to make excuses for this. They can't stand seeing this. How are we going to answer this? And you go in their church nursery and it's got Noah's Ark on the wall. Hey, what do you think that story is about? God killing the whole world. <laughs> Except for Noah and his families. People are just hypocrites. You don't have to apologize for God. I don't have to know why, but I, I trust him. He knows what he's doing. You know, have you ever heard of the tribulation? The seven trumpets, the seven vials of God's wrath. There'll be a lot of bloodshed during that time. You know what that tells me too? The Old Testament God hasn't changed. The New Testament. Another thing we need to understand is that, you know, we don't know what all was going on in these cities and probably for good reasons. Okay? Again, you know, the Bible, if the Bible would have told us the type of thing that was going on there. You know what wicked people would do? Wicked people would try to reproduce it and recreate it. But you know what? God wanted these things gone and it to never happen again. And, and uh, in Luke or Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, this was before they go into the promised land. Okay, And I'm sure some of this applied to Jericho. In verse 24, when God's given them the law, this is after He's told them, you know, no being a pervert, no being a homo, no, you know, uh, lying down with the beast, all that stuff. I'm not going to go read all those. But he says, defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. For in all these, the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done which are before you, and the land is defiled, that the land spew not you out also when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. So understand that these things that the people did, while they wouldn't have been able to understand it back then, I think we could probably understand it pretty good now, they were probably filled with disease. With all the homosexuality and things that were going on, you know these people were probably full of diseases. And if they keep these people around and there's any intermingling between the children of Israel, there's probably going to be many of the children of Israel that are going to die too. If you let these people live, they're going to go to other villages. They're going to spread their diseases. They're going to spread their bad uh, teaching. At the end of the day, wiping out a wicked people like this is going to save many lives in the long run. And that's why, too, you know, when the Bible puts the death penalty on sodomites, it's not, it's not a cruel thing. It ends up saving lives. It saves many lives. We would save so many lives if we would just do that because of all the people that they, one, are going to turn, you know, by defiling them. And then just the disease that's going to be spread. And so you say, that's so terrible. Take, you know, taking out that one person... But you know what? Again, they, what they did was horrible and it was destructive to a nation. It's destructive to a village. Many innocent people would have died if these people are spared. And so sometimes you just got to you know, wipe the slate clean and get, get rid of it.
And so God, so another reason God did this is because he had given this land for a specific people and under the law, they were supposed to keep certain people out of the land and out of their bloodline. That was, those things were specified in the law. Now, no nation today has any such command on it. Okay? We, we don't have any command to keep a bloodline uh, you know, pure of other groups and things like that. It's about the spirit now. It's about the works. It's, 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 it's not about the bloodline. God has moved on under the new covenant to a spiritual nation. God is raising up a spiritual nation, not a physical nation. And you know what? Thankfully, our spiritual genes are always going to be pure because everyone who gets saved is born again and they're born of the Spirit of God. And so they have that purity. Anyone who's saved, we are pure in that area. And so that's what we're focused on. God does want a pure race of people, but it's pure. It's a pure spiritual race, not a physical race. So that command is something that was clearly, you know, ended and finished, you know, when the new covenant came in, when the reformation came in. So we're not worried about these things today. So we're not, we don't believe in ethnic cleansing or anything like that. And people try to act like, because, you know, we think perverts should be punished for, you know, crimes that we're like wanting to commit genocide and take out like a race of people like homos are a race. And that's just, I would be offended if I was like some minority race and people were putting me in the same group with them. I would be very offended like that, but I'm sorry, homos are not a race. Okay? You know, that would be like me just, you know, if I was a murderer and then like demanding minority rights for people who kill other people, you know, that would just be stupid, you know, and then trying to get the rainbow flag to put a color on there representing us. I don't know what that would be, but uh, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. So... The other thing too, whenever we read passages like this, you know, it, it reminds us, and, and when you see people's reaction to it, is we have this problem today where we've gotten so used to grace that we have forgotten that grace implies we deserve judgment. We forget that. I don't think people deserve to be killed by an army. Okay, but you do believe that people deserve to spend eternity in hell? I'd rather get killed by an army and my soul be intact. You know, the Bible says we're better off having our hand cut off or our eye plucked out than to go into hellfire. So it's amazing how, you know, people, they act like physical death is worse than spiritual death. Have you ever read about hell? So um, these people have no consistency here. They act like, and I do, I think a lot of them are just acting like they believe in hell. But I'm sorry, the way you act about just physical death tells me you don't believe in a spiritual death. You don't believe in eternal death. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think you really believe it. And and the truth is, we have. We've gotten so used to grace, we we forget that. But you know what? And I, uh, you know, the Bible says in Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we forget. We deserve to perish. We deserve it. God, because God is being merciful, because He's not wiping us out right now. All of a sudden, we act like we have this right from God to not kill us. Obviously, the government doesn't have a right to wipe us out, but God does. And if God wanted to let a super volcano go off and take out America, you know what? We've got nothing to complain about. If, if we did, if we had a massive earthquake to just, you know, destroy this entire country, we got nothing to complain about. No matter what happens in our country, 
Our country has done enough wickedness. While I don't want it to happen, at the end of the day, I don't think I would blame God or be mad at God for doing it. We've been begging for it. Abortion alone is enough that our country could get wiped out tomorrow and we've got nothing to complain about. If we we wake up dead tomorrow in heaven because of some major judgment, because God allowed our country to get nuked or something like that, when we get to heaven, it be like, like, well, thankful God gave us as much time as he did. Because he gave us a lot more than we deserved. That, and thankfully, we're still in heaven. You know, that, that should be our attitude. But yet, people do. They just act like everybody, you know, nobody deserves to die. So, uh, you know, instead of dispensationalists, they often just answer everything by just claiming dispensationalism and that God was different at different times. But, you know, what's interesting, if we keep reading in this story, it reveals how God hasn't changed at all. Because, notice in verse 22, it says, But Joshua uh, had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath, as he swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Notice how even though this was a cursed city, Rahab, a harlot, one of the least respected even in Jericho, because again, remember last, a few weeks ago, nobody respects harlots. Nobody ever has. Notice how she found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of Noah. Remember in Genesis 6 where God says, It repenteth me that I have made man. I'm destroying man. And man deserved it. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It sounds like God is the same, was the same in the flood as he was in Jericho. You know what? As it turns out, God hasn't changed because the biggest judgment of all is still coming. Look at, and again, back in Second Peter three nine, we read that verse. He's not willing that any should perish. What would they perish for? Judgment's coming. Okay, but then let's keep reading. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Listen, you know what? Judgment is coming. We deserve it. But you know what? People like Tommy McMurtry found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you know what we're experiencing right now? We're experiencing a time of God's mercy. America is experiencing grace and mercy right now. Our whole world is experiencing grace and mercy right now. Why? This is that accepted time. This is that day of salvation. God is able to do that because of what Jesus did on the cross. He's given us this opportunity for the last 2,000 years where, where mankind can come to God. They can get saved. They can receive salvation. They don't have to experience the day of the Lord on the bad end of things. They can be spared. But you know what? 
a lot of people are, are not going to, and one of these days, the hammer's going to get dropped on it. But those of us like who are like Rahab the harlot, who aren't good, but have believed God, we're going to have, you know, who've had faith, we're going to be spared. And so God, it, folks, God hasn't changed. Okay? God has not changed. America's experiencing grace and mercy right now. The whole world is. And so verse 26, And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth the city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son he shall set up the gates of it. And this here, this is a unique curse showing unique things about the city too. Because again, I think for good reason, God didn't tell us everything that was going on. We have no idea. We do, So we know they were doing things in a lot of these places like sacrificing their children to Molech. I mean, that's how whacked out and how horrible these people were. And it, it, again, if it was remembered what they did, those things would be repeated by other evil people. I think these things have been forgotten for a reason. And we just need to trust that God knew what he was doing in this situation. But this curse, we don't see this kind of curse that often. We do see a curse like this on Sodom that will never be happened. Uh, it will never be inhabited again, even in the millennium. Sodom's not going to be inhabited. That's all bad. And we know how bad Sodom was. So a similar curse is put on Jericho. That should tell us a few things about the city. That's why I do. That's why I think I do. I believe this was a reprobate city. And this, this is a terrible curse. And he's basically saying whoever tries to rebuild this city, he, they're, they're firstborn. Uh, and their youngest son, shall he set up, their firstborn is going to die, basically. That was a curse God put on. And you know what? In 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says, And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did heal the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And sure enough, this man lost his firstborn because he built that city. This was hundreds and hundreds of years later. And God remember, God remembered his word that he gave. And that man did. He paid and he lost his son. And ended up using his youngest son uh, in, in the gate because of uh, that curse that God put in that city. God didn't want it rebuilt. That man rebuilt it. He paid the consequences. So verse last verse, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua. And his fame was noised throughout all the country. And so this chapter is just one more example of a great victory that God gave to an obedient generation. And this is a reminder of how God wants to do great things for his people. But you know what? A holy God is not going to bless disobedience and sin. This, is how, this, this type of thing is what God wanted to do for Israel all the time. We, ha we are serving a God that anxiously is awaiting opportunities to do good for his children. The problem is we're constantly begging for judgment. We're constantly begging for chastening. If we would just be obedient to God, he would he, he would bless us greatly. And so, you know, we should learn from that. These things are written for our admonition. And we should just obey God at the best of our ability. And thank God, even when we mess up, there's still grace. And, and he will abundantly pardon. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord. I thank you for this chapter and the great victory we see in it. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to learn from it. Help us to be victorious. Help us to be obedient uh, to your word. I pray you'll help us to have 
uh, faith and obedience like Joshua. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead.